Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. What is happening, one and all? Welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. We have reached the end of 2006, quarter four of the number one songs on my chart that year. Again, not a banner year for yours truly in my personal life. But looking back at these number ones, I'm glad to find out that not a lot of them really reflected the down mood or stuck mood I felt at the time. Great music endures no matter what the circumstances were when you were listening to it. Now, as I teased, this will be the last episode of this kind in the calendar year of 2020. The final two episodes I will be dropping before the year ends is a special Christmas episode and a look back at the year that was musically for me. Those will be a good change of pace to record, and hopefully they'll both be enjoyable to listen to. But for now... I got a whopping 10 songs to talk about this episode, so I mustn't waste any more time. Let's go! We kick things off in the week ending October 7, 2006. My childhood idol Weird Al Yankovic dropped a new album that month, and the lead single spent one week at number one on my charts. Here's a bit of White and Nerdy. That's my favorite MC Keep your 40 out just have an Earl Grey tea My rims never spin To the contrary You'll find that they're quite stationary All of my action figures are cherry Stephen Hawking's in my library My MySpace page is all totally pimped out Got people begging for my top 8 spaces Yo, I know pie to a thousand places Ain't got no grills, but I still wear braces I order all of my sandwiches with mayonnaise I'm a whiz and minesweeper, I can play for days Once you see my sweet moves, you're gonna stay amazed My fingers moving so fast, I'll set the place ablaze There's no killer rap, I haven't run At Pascal, well I'm number one Do vector calculus just for fun I ain't got a gap, but I got a soldering gun Happy Days is my favorite theme song I could sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong I'll ace any trivia quiz you bring on I'm fluent in JavaScript as well as Klingon The last time we encountered Weird Al on Music Is My Radar It was his number one song Couch Potato from May 2003 A lackluster song from somewhat of a lackluster album That I think I only put at number one Because I felt duty bound to put a Weird Al song at number one For a few years after that I dismissed Weird Al as Kid stuff Crazy stuff. Thinking, A, I'm too old for this, and B, Weird Al just gotten married and had a kid, so he's gonna settle down. And the next year, when both of his parents passed away in a tragic carbon monoxide poisoning in their house, I'd figured all the more reason not to expect any new material from Weird Al Yankovic. But like a weird phoenix, he rose from the weird ashes. In September 2006, he released his album Straight Outta Linwood, obviously a take on Straight Outta Compton, and he was born in Linwood, California, for the record. 
and the album is better than the 2003 one Poodle Hat. One big reason was I had becoming more and more of a music nerd, and the style parodies really opened my eyes for the first time. Those are ones where he doesn't parody a song by an artist, but rather the artist's main style, and where he proves to be a proud, proud music lover, music nerd. I have a theory that as a kid, you're drawn to the parodies of songs like Eat It or Fat, but as you get older and more musically inclined, you are bound to appreciate those style parodies. On this album, he has takeoffs of Cake, Rage Against the Machine, and the 2004 release of Smile by Brian Wilson. But for the second straight time, the song that went number one was the rap parody. White and Nerdy was a parody of Ridin' by Chameleon Air, in which the chorus was trying to catch me riding dirty. Even though I made it a point to avoid pop music, I'd actually known this song, as our local baseball team had played it as one of the players' walk-up songs the previous summer. I was struck by how retro it sounded. It could have been a big hit in the 90s. And might be a hit now, because it was about racial profiling and police brutality. Yeah. Al changed the song from that to a profile of a really nerdy, suburban white dude. I had gotten sick of his food or TV parodies, which is why I don't really like Couch Potato all that much. But Al riffing on all the stereotypical nerdy stuff at the time? Sign me up! Both this and It's All About the Pendiums from his 99 album Running With Scissors are two of my favorite songs of his. But Pentiums is much more of a time capsule, especially because it mentions Y2K. Then again, Y Nerdy does talk about MySpace, having people begging for his top 8 spaces. Oh, did that hit me a little too hard at the time. And of course, Weird Al completely taking on the rapping style of Chameleon Air, and impressing him in the process. Plus the music video that spells out all of what he's saying, including cameos from Key and Peele, back then primarily known for Matt TV. Yeah, this song and album taught me to not quite count out Weird Al. This would be the last number one song of his on my charts, and I did have a similar falling out and falling back in on his career. I ignored most of his 2011 album Alpocalypse during another nadir of me not giving a you-know-what about pop music. But by his last album to date, 2014's Mandatory Fun, I was a lot more familiar with pop music, thanks in large part to Todd in the Shadows, so that album was okay with me. Of course, Al hasn't dropped a studio album since then, and he's got quite a few other projects going on, not to mention showing up on every single podcast possible. Gall darn it, everybody. Weird Al is just the nicest guy in the world. End of story. From Weird Al Yankovic to Weird Science we go. Okay, not really, but it's the same band who did that song. Spending two weeks at number one, it's Oingo Boingo with Dead Man's Party. Dead man's party Who could ask for more? 
So, Oingo Boingo, the starting point for one Danny Elfman, and a band that I like in limited doses, a song here and there, as opposed to a full album. They started off in the 70s as the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, and back then they weren't a pop rock group, they were a street theater troupe, and the leader of the group up until the mid-70s was Richard Elfman, the older brother of Danny Elfman. Richard moved on to filmmaking and left the band in the hands of his brother Danny. By 1979, they had shifted to a true rock group, and the primary sounds on their first three albums are New Wave and Ska. Danny said he was inspired by bands like The Specials and Madness for the Ska part, and XTC for the New Wave part. And that, to me, gave the game away, because I am much, much more of an XTC fan than Oingo Boingo. I mean, yeah, Oingo Boingo was more Ska, after all, they had a horn section, whereas XCC didn't. But Elfman's vocal tics are very much copycat of Andy Partridge. And while it's part of the charm for Partridge, it often annoys me when Elfman employs those. But at this point in 2006, the only XCC I knew about was Making Plans for Nigel. And I had known Dead Man's Party from when Oingo Boingo was in the movie Back to School with my main man Rodney Dangerfield. I believe they played the song while Rodney was busy not getting any respect, Hey, But I distinctly remember counting inventory at a co-op store, which is what Boise had long before we had a Whole Foods, and they had a selection of all kinds of 80s new wave. This one, Beautiful World by Devo, and several others that would pop up on my charts for the next couple weeks or months. To be super duper uber technical, the version I sampled was not the original Dead Man's Party, from the album of the same name in 1985. Rather, I had mistakenly got a hold of the version from Boingo Alive, their 1988 quote-unquote live album, as in recorded live on a studio soundstage. Some record label BS where the band switched labels in the middle of their career, but they couldn't license any of the songs on their old label, so they had to re-record them, blah blah blah. Record label bureaucrats. I familiarized myself with this version of Dead Man's Party, and listening back to the album version, I found it sluggish and kind of overproduced. Dead Man's Party was also the album with Weird Science, and was a bit of a streamlining of their signature ska new wave sound for more commercial success. It kind of worked. It was their highest charting album to that point. I'm pretty sure a lot of fans screened Sellout, but that's okay. I quite like this album, actually. This is one of two Oingo Boingo songs that has topped my charts as of this recording. I'll get to the other one in the 2009 episodes, and there I'll talk a little bit more about Oingo Boingo and what else Danny Elfman is known for. Oh yeah, one more nugget before I move on. Dead Man's Party didn't quite have enough stamina to be the number one song during Halloween week, but this time I was against Halloween, didn't give a crap about it. No, dear listener, it would take another 10 years before I would dress up as Michael McDonald, and 12 more before dressing up as Elvis Costello. The next four songs to hit number one only lasted one week at the top each. That run of one weeker started the week ending October 28th with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Here's that unassailable classic, The Tears of a Clown.
All right, a little talk about how the sausage that is my charts gets made. The majority of the songs that enter my chart, especially the ones that make number one, are songs that I didn't know by heart already. And since I didn't start doing these charts until about 97 and top 10 until 99, there are quite a few songs from my childhood that would most likely show up on my charts if I did them back then. But once in a while, a song that I've known for years, I'll listen to again, and then all of a sudden something clicks, something hits me and says, This song is awesome! And that is definitely the case for The Tears of a Clown. I think I mentioned that I went through several summers as a young kid listening to oldies radio from when I woke up to when I went to bed. So I've got a lot of songs that I know by heart, whether I like them or not. And for years after that, those songs would just turn into background noise for me. And such was the case with Tears of a Clown. Right before this, my main frame of reference for the song was a journeyman quarterback in the NFL was named Josh McCown. And my sports hero Chris Berman would give him a Bermanized nickname, Josh Tears of McCown! Do, 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 touchdown! But around this time, I don't remember if I heard it on the radio or while counting inventory. I listened to the song again, and something inside just clicked. I don't like using the word perfect to describe a song, but this song is just flat-out perfect. This song got me to appreciate Smokey Robinson's voice and his crazy good wordplay when he writes lyrics. He's got that in spades here, using some great terms like Pagliacci and Camouflage My Sadness to talk about a subject he had already talked about in previous songs, especially Tracks of My Tears. The sentiment of both songs being, I'm gonna wear a shitting grin, pretend I'm happy and all that, put on a show, but meanwhile, deep inside, I'm sad as fuck. Not that Smokey would be all profane like that. He's far too classy, isn't he? That reusing of the subject matter might have been partly why, even though it was recorded in 1967, it was passed up as a hit single. Instead, Motown decided to release The Love I Saw in You was a Mirage and More Love from the same album that year. Both of them were sizable hits, and I'm actually going to talk about More Love in 2013. So it's not like Motown made an egregious error, hindsight being 2020, as More Love is a wonderful song. It would take until 1970 for the song to become a hit. That year, the British branch of Motown decided to release this song to get more material in the market. It shot to number one in the UK, and so back home, Motown decided to release the song here, and it topped the charts here for one week in late 1970 to be knocked off by My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. That might be one of the best two-song stretches at number one ever. I could see some people being a little put off by it, as it's very circusy in instrumentation. That instrumental track was actually composed by Stevie Wonder and Henry Cosby. No worries, no relation to the cancelled Cosby. And Smokey thought it sounded circusy, so he added the appropriate lyrics to it. This is one of those songs that I just can't do justice. Like I said, it's a perfect, perfect pop song. One of my favorite pop songs ever, actually. And besides, y'all know this song already, so do I need to blabber on and on about it? I don't think so. Oh yeah, one more tidbit. Around this time, I was listening to the version by the English Beat in their ska version from 1979. Definitely not a patch on the original, but still pretty good. Check that out. Coming into November, it's the return of a group that I kind of ignored for most of 2006, but I made up for lost time for the next year or so. They might be giants, with AKA Driver and Sleeping in the Flowers. Here's a little bit of the first song. 
Let's give a hearty welcome back to the Johns, They Might Be Giants, to Music Is My Radar. I'd taken about a year break from them after listening to them quite a bit in 2005, but I stayed in chronological order as the last TMBG song to hit number one was The Guitar, coming from their 1992 album Apollo 18. This song comes from their next album, 1994's John Henry. The title was the name of a legend back in the 19th century. John Henry was an African-American railroad worker, and the story goes that he competed against a new machine meant to break rocks to see which would break through a mountain first, man or machine, and John Henry won. This became a huge symbol during the labor right movement and the civil rights movement of man versus machine and solidarity and racial pride. Why did the Johns choose this title for the album? Because this was the first one they recorded with a real band. Electra, their record label, asked them to put together a band for the tour of Apollo 18. And whether the Johns felt they took the original two-man concept as far as it could go or not, they saw this album as Man, a rock band, defeating Machine, a drum machine. As you can imagine, some of their longtime fans threw a fit over this. Y'all know how superfans are when their favoritist group changes. They even went as far as staging boycotts of their live show. I share the same general consensus of this album, in that it's cool to hear a more organic, full-fledged production against the songs, but that some of the songwriting is a bit off. But not to worry, both Linnell and Flansburg have their share of classic tracks on the album. This one comes from the pen of John Flansburg, and true to his style, he captures a feel more than anything else, of a very repetitive-slash-hypnotic groove painting the picture of a truck driver who's on limited sleep but needs to make his rounds because it's just a full day's drive away. I'd assumed it was a truck driver carrying quantities of cough syrup NyQuil, but it also could mean that the driver has hopped up on NyQuil, which doesn't make sense because if he was wanting to stay awake, he'd choose no-dose, not something like NyQuil that'll knock you out. So yeah, it's probably some illegal driving here. A guy hopped up on cough syrup, who ignore the warnings not to use while operating heavy machinery. Who knows? On the album, it's titled AKA Driver, and as you might have guessed, it's because they want to avoid a lawsuit. According to Legal Mumbo Jumbo, you can say a trademark name in a song, but if you use said trademark name as a title of a song, that's when you get into snit. But that part doesn't interest me. It's just a kick-butt song, and one where the presence of a backing band helps immensely. The verses are very rhythm section heavy, with a bass line and really cool drums, 
neither of which you could replicate the same way on a drum machine or a synth bass. And there's a lot more guitar shredding, especially in the solo, which was another new wrinkle on John Henry to some mixed results. Also apparent on the flip side number one song, Sleeping in the Flowers. I didn't provide a sample of this one, but it's another John Flansburg song. One of those where the verse and the chorus sound like two separate songs, the chorus being the much better part. Anyway, it's good to see They Might Be Giants back, and I'll be talking about them a little bit more the next couple years. The quick turnover at the top of the charts continues, as the third of four one-week number ones is next. For the week ending November 11th, this is George McRae with Rock Your Baby. I'm pretty sure this is my only disco song to hit number one on my charts. I'd have to go back and check, but I wouldn't be surprised. Not really a big disco guy, nor am I one of those disco sucks type people who wants to take those old records off the shelf. To quote a Bob Seger song, that's really dumb. But this song hits the spot for me. It's rare that I would call a song sexy or say that a song makes me a little bit horny, but this one does. I know songs by Barry White are shorthand for love-making music, but when you're in the heat of the moment, sex sounds more like those high-pitched squeals that you hear from George McRae or Marvin Gaye in Let's Get It On than the low voice of Barry White. And especially at the end where McRae goes, ah, like three times in a row. That's him coming three times in the span of 30 seconds or so. What a guy. Anywho, you can take your earmuffs off now, enough sex talk. I had known this song for quite a few years before this. It was number one here in America. In fact, knocked off the very similar sounding Rock the Boat from number one. And the songwriters, who I'll talk about later, admitted that Rock the Boat inspired Rock Your Baby. And at almost the exact same time, the song hit number one in the UK too. And I believe that's how I rediscovered it. Yes, this is very early disco. One of the first uses of the Roland drum machine, and very sparse backing. And the guys who wrote this song? Harry Wayne Casey and Richard Finch, aka Casey and the Sunshine Band. And yeah, once you listen to the song, especially the verses, it sounds very much like all their hit singles. That's the way I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh, get down tonight, shake your booty, etc. I don't like any songs by Casey and the Sunshine Band, so give me Rock Your Baby over those any day. Word is that they tried to write the song for themselves, but they couldn't reach the high notes. So their plan B was to pitch it to Gwen McRae, George's wife and an already established studio musician. She didn't show up to the sessions, but husband George was sticking around, so he gave it a go. And the rest was history. 
Besides being one of the earliest disco songs that have huge commercial success, it was also quite influential for other artists. Abba says that the song's backing track inspired Dancing Queen, so you could say they dug up this song for the Dancing Queen. Dig up the Dancing Queen! <laughs> yes, I'm gonna keep doing that dumb joke. Rock Your Baby also proved very influential on John Lennon's first number one single after the Beatles, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. The arrangement of that is less disco, a little more 70s theme show, but the chord progressions are very similar to Rock Your Baby, especially in the sax breakdowns. I've also heard a music fan on one of the websites I read point out the similarities between Rock Your Baby and that lame Dr. Hook song, Man, you're in mob with a beautiful woman. Oh wait, that's the buckwheat version. When you're in love with a beautiful woman. To sum it up, a very influential song and a rare song that gets me in a certain kind of mood. Moving on. Rounding out the one-week wonders, replacing George McRae at the top, is the British group ABC with That Was Then, But This Is Now. That last lyric before I faded out the song, can't complain, mustn't grumble, help yourself to another piece of apple crumble. That's one of those lyrics that has shown up on countless worst lyrics ever lists. And I think that's where I first heard about this song. And let me tell you, dear listener, here's another proof that they can't all be gems. This song is the only one by ABC to top my charts. Not the look of love, not poison arrow, not be near me. Not when Smokey sings, but this one that sounds nothing like them. ABC was a band in the British New Wave scene. I've seen them classified as New Wave or Synth Pop, but they were in teen idols like Duran Duran, or super goth New Romantic like, say, The Human League. Their 1982 album Lexicon of Love has stood as a classic of that 80s scene. The lead singer Martin Fry said he wanted to fuse punk and disco, but sing about simple love songs harkening back to Cole Porter. By punk, I think he meant attitude, because nothing on that album screams punk to me. Disco, I can kind of see. It's very much sort of funky, you know, British way. And a lot of orchestrations from Ann Dudley, later of Art of Noise. That's the one that spawned the hits The Look of Love and Poison Arrow, both great pop songs with great music videos. I do very much like Lexicon of Love. And Martin Fry as a vocalist is very distinctive. He obviously was inspired by David Bowie, and especially Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, but he had a theatricality all his own. Meanwhile, That Was Then, But This Is Now comes from their album Beauty Stab, a classic case of sophomore slump. I've not heard the album, but Martin later admitted that the band didn't want to do Lexicon of Love Part 2, try to change things up. 
Plus, by then, Ann Dudley and Trevor Horn were gone. Horn, I believe, was busy working on Frankie Goes to Hollywood at the time. If this song is any indication, they tried to be more of a rock band with guitars. There's still a classic piano part in the chorus, which is the best part of the song. But the song starts and stops so much, it gets annoying after a while. And it just feels stiff compared to something as light as The Look of Love. You got that lyric about Apple Crumble, but it's not like the rest of the lyrics make any cohesive sense either. It's not a bad song, don't get me wrong, but seeing it at number one after all these years is a little bit eh. But you know what? It might get boring if I was consistently fanboying over songs, so it's good to have some number one songs that didn't stand the test of time with me so I can hone my critical skills. So there you go. Side note, around this time, maybe several years later, Martin Fry did come to Boise solo. Chose not to go to that show, though. It was before I went to a lot of concerts, and I probably would have been one of the only dudes in there among some 40-some women. Oh well, he's still performing under the name ABC. Good for you, Martin. Moving on. Hey, 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 another one of my all-time favorite artists dropped new material in 2006. That's right, it's back. He spent two weeks at the top of the charts with Think I'm in Love and Strange Apparition, and dang it, I gotta play both of them. information. That alone is exciting, but it had only been 18 months since the release of his previous album, Huero, and that came after two and a half years of no new Beck material. So yeah, the news of a new Beck album was a pleasant surprise for me. However, the gestation period of the album dated back to 2003. That was the same year he started working on Huero, but whereas that album with the Dust Brothers came out rather quickly, the information almost took three years to complete. According to Beck's book, Throwing Frisbees at the Sun, it started out painless and ended up being painful. The producer on this album was Nigel Godrich, who had produced previous Beck albums Mutations and Sea Change. But unlike those two albums, 
the information had a more electronic beats, even though as a whole the album sounds kind of downbeat, without the psychedelia of mutations or the lost love of sea change. And like any of those Godrich albums, the information sounds quiet labored over, and sort of overlong, as it runs for over 60 minutes. The first two singles released were Nausea, a moderately catchy pop rock song, and Cell Phone's Dead, probably the most playful song on the information. One by one, I'll knock you out! Sounds like MCP pants from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, doesn't it? And then the third single was Think I'm In Love. That surprised me because Think I'm In Love is the most easily accessible song off the album, kind of similar to Girl from Huero, even though that was the second single. Anywho, Think I'm In Love is a very simple song, just a little simple bass line, and Beck giving a little twist on a simple love song in a minor key, and the lyrics speak of an insecurity that you'd feel at the very start of a relationship. Are we in love? Is this going somewhere? I've been burned before, am I going to be burned again? I don't think it merits a deep, deep analysis. Just a catchy little rock song, very enjoyable. No surprise that it was a live standard for Beck. When I saw him in Salt Lake in 2014, he did this song and mashed it up with I Feel Love by Donna Summer, one of those concert-only interpretations. My favorite on the album is probably the second track of this, Strange Apparition. Many a reviewer has pointed out that it sounds like something the Stones would have come up with in the early 70s. And yeah, I do hear echoes of their gospel rock songs, You Can't Always Get What You Want, or Shine a Light. But when I heard it for the first time, my connection was, hey, it sounds like something off of Moby's play. Somewhat funky beats, a piano lick with the same rhythm as half of those songs on play, gospel vocals. Though I'm thinking if Moby did this song, he'd add his own vocals and not a sample of an old gospel song. And yes, it does bring to mind a ghost, a strange apparition, as Beck sounds haunted and in awe throughout the song. Not sure what I think about the tempo change taking place at the end of the song, slowing it to a crawl. Every time I hear it, I half expect the song to kick back up into the fast tempo that it started off with, and that's probably my only complaint about the song. As opposed to Think I'm In Love, Strange Apparition was not released as a single, and Beck has not done this song live very often. Doesn't surprise me, you need to have a good piano player to reproduce that riff. Without it, the song would definitely suffer. To wrap it up, Information is a long album, and Beck's officially an elder statesman at that point, but it's still a good listen. But it would be another 11 years before Beck returned to the top of my charts, so let's bid him adieu for now. On the week ending December 9th, Beck was replaced at number one by a 1980s, not really a one-hit wonder, but you can't be blamed if you thought so. Here's Dwight Twilley with Girls. Girls do, 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 do. All we really want is girls do, 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 do. In the morning, baby shark, do, 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 do. <laughs> the fact that I sang the wrong girls and then matched it up with baby shark, something I literally just came up with, should tell you that I don't have a lot of comments about this Dwight Twilly song, Girls. 
I'm pretty sure what happened was I was combing through the American Top 40 on the week I was born, the week of March 24th, 1984. Yes, I'm old. And I found a song called Girls by Dwight Twilley and looked it up to see what it was about. And it's basically power pop updated for the 1980s with a music video that's very much of its time. It's got Dwight Twilley playing a high school football coach, bringing his troops in for a halftime speech, but instead it just talks about them girls. Then one of the guys finds a peephole into the girls' locker room. I told you, 80s. And finally it's revealed that the cheerleaders found a peephole of their own into the men's shower, so... Hey, let's get something for the ladies, too. I don't know, whatever. That video strikes me as an attempt to do something like the Jay Giles band Centerfold, another power-pop song of the 80s that's a heck of a lot more memorable than Girls. But I'm guessing there was one and one selling point that put Girls at number one. That counterpoint in the chorus, Mr. Tom Petty himself. And I'm guessing that's what carried it to number 16 in America in 1984. Obviously, Tom Petty is nowhere to be found in that video. He was off dressing as a Mad Hatter, I guess. Or else that dumb video concept was beneath him. Yeah, just like that was then, but this is now. Girls is a lesser number one in my canon. Looking at my weekly charts, I do see that Beck song failed at number two. Didn't quite have enough for three weeks at number one. And at number three was what I call the Another Brick in the Wall Suite. I'd finally listened to enough of Pink Floyd's The Wall, and I found that Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 made a whole hell of a lot more sense on the album as opposed to a standalone single where it was number one in the UK and the US, a classic rock standard I'd never liked until I heard Another Brick in the Wall Part 1 and The Happiest Days of Our Lives to segue into Part 2. That or the Beck song probably would have been better off at number one this week. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. so congrats to Dwight, and we'll see him again in the next episode of Music Is My Radar with a much better song. We stay in the 80s for the next number one song. Spending two weeks at the summit, Paul Weller's back. Not with the jam, though. He's in his post-jam group here, the Style Council. Here's my ever-changing moods. <laughs> disbanded Jam in late 1982 and formed the Style Council early the next year, 1983, it was a wee bit controversial. As mentioned in the previous episode, his disbanding of the Jam was completely unexpected by the press and by his bandmates themselves. 
but Weller wanted to explore different genres of music and just couldn't do it within the confines of the jam. He recruited Nick Talbot, a keyboard player formerly of Dexy's Midnight Runners, because, in Weller's words at the time, he shares my hatred of rock myth and the rock culture. Quick FYI, Mick Talbot was in Dexy's Midnight Runners in their first album, when they were heavily inspired by Northern Soul. This was long before Come On Eileen. Anywho, back to your regularly scheduled style council. Their first release as the council was Speak Like a Child, which was much softer and soulful than anything the jam ever did, and it had that dreaded 80s shuffle beat, a la Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I would guess that was a cold water in the face to a lot of jam fans. Despite all that, it was successful in the UK, as were their first half-dozen releases, none charting any lower than number 11. My Ever-Changing Moods was their first release in the year 1984, and proved to be the only top 40 hit that Paul Weller would ever have in the jam, style council, or solo. I wonder if it got a boost from the music video, which showed Paul and Mick riding bikes in really preppy British clothing. I remember the Sklar brothers expressing disappointment at the Style Council, saying the jam were all cool and mod and such, but with the Style Council, they went from that to preppy boys on bikes. Ever-Changing Moods wasn't the first single, but it makes for a good narrative. To take it back to Music Is My Radar, this song had a long, strange journey to number one. It actually peaked at number two in early March of 2003, kept off the top by Train in Vain by The Clash, but that was a different version. I had come across that song on Early 80s Song of the Week, a defunct website where I got a lot of my first taste of obscure 80s, but the version that got to number two was the album version on Café Bleu, which was just Paul Weller and a piano. I remember coming across an all-music guide review of the song saying, oh, it's kind of a funky little Curtis Mayfield thing, and that really confused me. I'm like, it's just Paul and his piano. What are you listening to? And then I come to find out that the single version was the one that they were talking about. The one that was a top 40 hit in America. And yeah, Paul's gone on record saying it's an homage to Curtis Mayfield. Paul Weller playing the Jerry Butler to Mick Talbot's Curtis Mayfield. It's one of those songs that's very much up-tempo and driving, horn-filled, but not really rocking. I would later hear the song once in a while when counting inventory, so it was soft enough to make those playlists. Also, like any good 1984 song, it's about nuclear holocaust. Most notably in the lines, the hush before the silence, the winds after the blast. Nuclear bomb, the day after. Quite a few other Style Council songs were about another pet topic of the mid-80s. That damn Maggie Thatcher. Paul later admitted that he let his political slash maybe socialist views overshadow the music at times. I'm not going to get caught up in the jam versus Style Council debates. I wasn't there at the time, and it's kind of apples and oranges. I'll just let Tears for Fears sum up how a lot of people felt. Sure, you tell him, Mr. Roland Orzabal. The final number one song of 2006 lasted one week at the top of the charts. On the week ending December 30th, Elton John's back with Song for Guy.
So, similar to Passengers earlier this year, this was an Elton John track that's not very well known here in America, but it was a top five single in his native UK, combined with the fact that Elton John had many number one singles in America in the 1970s, whereas the only time he chopped the charts in the UK was with Kiki D and Don't Go Breaking My Heart. So all the more remarkable that it had that much success in the UK. It comes from his 1978 album, A Single Man. His previous album, Blue Moves, in 1976, was a huge come down from the success that he had in the 70s. A double album, but very downbeat. Only song that anyone remembers from it is Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word. For a single man, Elton John ditched most of his backing band, and more importantly, he and his lyricist Bernie Taupin took a little break from each other. Elton ended up doing the reverse of what he did with Bernie Taupin, writing the melodies first, and his collaborator Gary Osborne would add lyrics later. And of course, there are a lot more simplistic lyrics than the stuff that Bernie Taupin would come up with. It was only moderately successful, and the album itself is quite a bit of a mixed bag. But it does end with this instrumental, which tops out at over six minutes. Elton wrote and recorded this song in a bit of a morbid mood. He said at the time he had this weird obsession with death, imagining himself floating out in space over his dead body, looking on. And then the very next day, he learned that a 17-year-old messenger boy for his label Rocket Records, by the name of Guy Perchette, had died the previous day in a motorcycle accident. It sounds like Elton took this as an unfortunate serendipity, and he would dedicate this song to The Messenger, which explains the title, Song for Guy. I think a superficial comparison can be made between this song and Funeral for a Friend off of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, both being instrumentals and both being tangently related to death. In the case of Funeral for a Friend, Elton had penned this song as something he'd want to hear at his own funeral. And that one is a lot more progressive than Song for Guy. Multi-section, multi-tempoed. Meanwhile, Song for Guy is comprised of two motifs, basically, both played on the piano, repeated quite a bit. The only vocals come in at the end with Elton chanting, Life isn't everything, to go along with the death theme. There are several arguments that can be made about this song, none of which I'd take great offense to. It's been dismissed as simplistic and adult contemporary, a little schmaltzy. And in fact, one of the main reasons that MCA, the U.S. label, didn't want to release it as a single is because they felt it too similar to Music Box Dancer. That was his fluke number three hit in early 1979 here in America. And I can kind of hear it. Sometimes I like to jokingly sing Music Box Dancer to the melody. But if you've never heard Music Box Dancer, rest assured, Song for Guy is a lot better. But other than that, I quite like the song. Maybe it serves as a good swan song to 2006, a year that I've said many times was not a great one for yours truly personally. It's purely subjective, and like I said, if it's not your cup of tea, I'm not going to blame you. We all like what we like, no apologies necessary. Now before we close the book on 2006, let's run through some honorable mentions. Both Weird Al and Beck had quite a few songs littering the charts from their respective new albums as well as They Might Be Giants from John Henry. But we do have some interesting songs that just barely missed number one. The week that Tears of a Clown was at number one, it was a coin flip decision whether I'd go with that one or Ever Fallen in Love by the Buzzcocks. In the end, Smokey won out. Also, Slade found themselves at number two twice, once with their original version of Come On, Feel the Noise, 
aka not the quiet ride version that was barely edged out by that was then but this is now and their big uk christmas classic merry christmas everybody spent one week at number two behind the style council that one i might talk about in the christmas episode i haven't decided yet but the song i've chosen to go out on is my all-time favorite Devo song, Beautiful World. It spent a week at number two right behind Oingo Boingo and their Party for Dead Men. If there's a song that summed up how my 22-year-old self was feeling, Beautiful World fit that bill, for better or for worse. As always, thank you so much for listening to Music Is My Radar. I'm definitely looking forward to switching things up a notch the last two episodes of 2020 and then going back to my list of number ones in 2021. Until then, I'll see you next week with some Christmas cheer. See you then, everybody. Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.